If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of James. James chapter 5, and we'll be in verses 1 through 6 this morning. James 5, 1 through 6. If you have a Bible from the back table and you're not sure where James is, you can find it on page 1115. James chapter 5. You'll notice this is the last chapter in the book of James. Um, and as much as I'd like to stretch it out longer, and as much as I think I could stretch it out longer if I wanted to, uh, we're going to plan to finish up in two weeks. So we'll have two more sermons in the book of James and seek to cover <clears throat> as best we can uh, the remaining verses. Um, and then actually my family will be on vacation for a couple weeks, and so someone else will be up here. So it'll work out well to finish James up. And when I uh, return, my hope is to be in the book of Proverbs for a little bit. But for this morning, we're in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Uh, we sing. We sang this morning. And we sing because of what fills our hearts. Uh, we sang songs today because the love of Christ fills us and it spills out in song. Or maybe it's sorrow for sin as we repent through song or thanksgiving for the grace that God has shown us. I thought about that and I thought about, well, what are the songs in our culture? What does culture sing about? And the theme of the songs on the radio, number one, has to be love. Love for another person, some sort of romantic love. But I think coming in second place to romantic love has to be maybe, this is, I don't have statistics, uh, but would be love of money. <laughs> I remember an early 90s hit one of the first things one of the first ones I can remember and the title of that song was it you know it wasn't shying away it was I want to be rich that was the title of the song and the chorus began I want money lots and lots of money <laughs> uh, the Beatles sang about in the 60s you remember they said the best things in life are free but you can leave them to the birds and bees why because I want money <laughs> so culture sings about this love for money and, and possessions, and some of us too, maybe not with our mouths, but to some degree or another, we all love money in our hearts, and that is a, a, a theme, a song, a melody that wants to rise up in our lives very often. And so we find here that because of that drive and that desire and that temptation towards the, the love of money, Scripture speaks very often about, about money about possessions, and contrary to what some people will tell you, it's usually not very positive. Uh, scripture usually warns us against riches, at least the love of them, and we'll soon see here in James that James has some of his harshest words uh, for the spirit that resides in those who are rich in earthly wealth. Now before we read those words, let's remember where we're at sort of in this whole letter of James. Since chapter 3, verse 13, James has been talking about, and we've been reflecting on, how we could walk according to the wisdom of the world, the flesh, and the devil, as compared to the, the wisdom that is from above, the wisdom of God. And if we desire to walk according to the wisdom of God, then it's going to mean that asking God for it, it's from above, so it's got to be a gift from Him, but also it's going to, to show up when we humble ourselves, when we submit to God, when we resist the devil, and when we draw near to God and He draws near to us. We saw that um, at the beginning of chapter 4 that that's how we come to know the wisdom of God. So James has been talking a little bit about how do we submit to God? How do we let God rule and reign in our lives? And he's been talking about a couple different areas. And the, one of them in chapter 4 here has to do with the temptation to exalt ourselves above God 
um, as the, the lawgiver and the judge, and we begin to judge others, and that exalts that we exalt ourselves above God. Another is to exalt ourselves above God as the one who is the sovereign Lord over the future. And we start to make arrogant plans about what we're going to do with our lives instead of submitting to His will. And here in chapter 5, uh, James is going to show us a, a third area that commonly, commonly leads us away from humility, away from submission to God as king, and away even from God himself. And that area is money and possessions. His words are not soft. His words are not lenient. They are not unclear, but rather he's very bold. And I think this is what James says to us. He says, if we persist in pridefully boasting in earthly wealth, then we will be humbled on the last day. If we persist, if we just continue to boast, to pridefully boast in earthly wealth, then we will be humbled on the last day. Riches can so grab a hold of our hearts that we begin to think that we are God, or that we are providing for ourselves, and that we are comforting ourselves. We exalt ourselves above God as the one who is our true treasure and is the one who gives us all the treasures that we have. And if we persist in that, if we boast primarily in the earthly wealth that we have, if we don't acknowledge God's place in that, then we will be humbled on the last day. I say that humbled on the last day because notice, we're going to read through this in a minute, but eternity is, is very much in view as James exposes the corrupting nature of temporary riches. And he shows us how empty it is to find our hope and wealth and to live our lives simply pursuing wealth. It's easy to forget how futile money and possessions are in light of the world that is to come. I thought about that in, in light of being at a funeral yesterday. They had pictures of this young man. Uh, they didn't have any frames of his pay stubs. They didn't talk about his job and what he made. They talked about his life because it, our life isn't made up of the things that we make. And James's words sort of wake us up to that. But because, boy, we can get so bogged down in, in just this pursuit of, of earthly wealth and possessions. So I want us to read this passage with the hope that God will give us an eternal perspective on money, on possessions, and lead us to humbly submit to his rule rather than finding our boast and our joy and our hope in the things of this earth. So look at James chapter 1, I'm sorry, James chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten and your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I'm always struck when I read passages like this about why we preach through books of the Bible. I would never choose this passage to preach on for a Sunday morning on my own, but because it's before us, we need to address what's here. And again, what James is telling us is if we persist in pridefully boasting in earthly wealth, that we will be humbled on the last day. James opens this chapter, he says, Come now, you rich. 
Those words parallel chapter 4, verse 13. Remember, come now you who say. Um, and in, in there, James is addressing the arrogant businessman. And here he's addressing the prideful rich man. Now, we read those words. It says, come now you rich. And we kind of turn around and say, is James talking to me? <laughs> because I'm not rich. That's not me. Uh, rich people live in mansions. Our heart says a, a rich person doesn't work the job that I work for the pay that I get and live in the house that I live in and eat the food that I eat and drive the car that I drive and pay the payment on that car that I pay. That's not me. I am not rich. Of course, rich is a relative term, isn't it? If you go to uh, Churchill Downs on Derby Day and you walk through Millionaire's Row, then we would all in that context say, I am not rich. Uh, and we would all probably be more at home in the infield than in the turf club, right? But if you and I went to a third world country and we walked past the homes and the huts that line streets there, then we would have a different perspective. And we would come home and we say, we would say, we are very rich. And in fact, we who live in America are rich according to the world's, what's going on in the world. To that end, here are some stats. Statistics are strange. They can be misleading. And so I take them with a grain of salt. But even if these things are partially true, it puts things in perspective. I was reading that almost half of the world's population lives on less than $2.50 a day. And about 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. Over 1 billion people have inadequate access to water, something that Joshua referenced as he was praying. 1 billion people. 22,000 children die due to poverty each day. 22,000. And it said that one out of every two children in the world live in poverty. Now, in light of that, even if those things, again, are just partially true, when James says, he calls out and says, come now, you rich, he is speaking to the vast majority, if not all of us. And even if I haven't convinced you and you want to say, no, not me, I'm not rich, then we could at least say that what James says about money and possessions can uh, can lead us away. What James says about how money and possessions can lead us away from submission to God and living under His rule, that that will apply to anyone who has money. Period. So one commentator, Motyer, puts it this way: He says, by facing clear, a clear-cut case of those who have wealth at their disposal, James teaches all of us in respect of whatever resources, however small, God has entrusted to us. By exposing such glaring abuses, he teaches us how we ought to use our wealth as an adjunct to a humble walk with God. He shows us the pits so that we may not fall into them. This applies to all of us. I was thinking that, you know, even the kids here, it applies. When we think of, when, you know, from a very early age, you start thinking about money and we start thinking about possessions and we want things and we watch commercials and, you know, kids, what's most important to you? What do you, What do you feel about the things that you own or the money that you have? Whatever amount that money is. So we're rich. We're the rich that James is talking to. And if we don't want to say that we're rich, then we at least have money. And therefore, uh, we are prone to the sins that come along with being rich. Notice I'm saying the sins that come along with being rich. Having money, even having a lot of money, is not a sin in and of itself. Contrary to the misquote of 1 Timothy 6.10, money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. 
Albert Barnes is helpful. He wrote this. There is no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit which it tends to engender in the heart, and the way in which it is used. Let me say that again and then simplify it. He said it comes from the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit it tends to engender in the heart, and the way in which it is used. So put more simply, I think he's saying sin comes not from money, but how we get money, how we use money, and how money changes the way that we view the world. That's where sin related to riches, related to money, those are the pitfalls. How do we get money? How do we use it once we have it? And how does the money that we have change the way that we view the world and view the people in it? I think if we sort of hold those things in our minds, it'll help us think about this chapter. I even think that's a great way of examining our own hearts related to riches, whatever we have. How did I get my money? How am I using my money? How, what, what effect is my bank account and my possessions and my home and all that I have, what effect does that have on the way that I view the world? And am I honoring God in all those different areas? I think that's really what James was trying to get at here. So, if, if we're honest with ourselves, then some repentance is going to be necessary. And so that's how James begins. It says, Come now, you rich, and give thanks to God for the ways that He has blessed you because of your faith that He will give you material blessing. That's not what He says. Isn't it interesting? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Maybe a bit, uh, it, we, we can think about how bold that is. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Why? The question, he's, he's saying that miseries are, are coming upon us because of the riches that we have. Now the question that always comes up that I was, as I was reading about this passage is, so is James talking to rich Christians or rich people who are not Christians? Because this sounds really harsh. Um, you know, the judgments that are here, boy, they, they seem to indicate individuals that are not true believers, which could be the case, but I feel like that would be strange because he's really been talking about how we submit to God. It could be possible that he's speaking to the rich that are not Christians and, and thereby addressing them and, and helping us as followers of Jesus see what's in our own heart. I don't know. I think the parallel construction there, come now you who say in verse 413, 4.13, then 5.1, come now you rich, makes me think that maybe he's talking about believers. And even this, this call to weep and, and howl, it takes me back to chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. You remember we saw that when we're submitting to God, when we're drawing near to God, one of the things that we need to do is to deal with our sin. And he describes it pretty starkly there. He, it's not a surface light dealing of sin. You remember he says we're to be wretched and mourn and weep, that our laughter should be turned into to mourning. And so we realize that we if that that we are rich if we see that, we see the sins that come out of that, then we need to look in our hearts and we need to see how often this love of money and treasures and possessions, how we love that stuff more than we love Christ and how we can submit to God and that we confess that. And so James calls us to repent, and then he, he starts to talk about how love of money shows up in our lives in negative ways. How does uh, boasting in wealth show up in our lives? And he gives us four different ways to look for it in our own hearts, okay? So all of these sins seem to be used then as evidence on the last day. 
uh, is what he talks about. So it's very sobering. But these four marks, if they are part of our lives um, continually and consistently, then we are in need of, of deep repentance. And so let's all hear these words and may the Spirit help us to see what's going on in our hearts. The first sort of sin related to money that, that, that James addresses is what we'll call hoarding. Hoarding. Um, look at verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last day. So he says three things. Your riches have rotted, your garments have been eaten by moths, and your gold and silver have rusted. Now, it's been pointed out that gold and silver actually can't rust um, as precious metals, but we're reminded that James isn't really talking about the fact that your things are going to fall apart necessarily, but but rather that they, they have no real eternal value in and of themselves. The things that are in our attics and our closets and the money that's in our bank account really has no eternal value in and of itself. Money it's almost like James is saying money is like our lives. Remember what he said about your life? Your life is but a mist. It's a vapor. And and the, our lives and the things that make up our lives, like money and possession, they're the same way. They're like a mist, like a vapor. The corrosion of our wealth is then said to be evidence against us that will eat our flesh like fire. Wow. Tones of final judgment are very strong there. And this judgment comes because we, we amass this wealth to be used only for ourselves. We hoard things and we hoard money as security and as, and as pleasure. Now, I've never seen an episode of Hoarders. Uh, maybe you have. But I worked for a company that did cleanouts of repossessed homes for a summer. And so I have experienced Hoarders. <laughs> I've seen garages and, and basements and entire houses filled with things that people knew they were going to use one day. Um, I've picked up clothes off the floor that had mushrooms growing out of them. Um, all the treasures that people had, they, they ended up in a dumpster outside their house. Of course, if I just point my finger at other people, I'm in denial. We just moved, and in packing up our house, I saw how hard it was to let go of things. I felt like I needed them. And for most of us, our closets are filled with clothes, but we buy more. Uh, we have drawers filled with old cell phones because we needed a new one. Uh, we see things and we want them even though we have them somewhere in a closet, but maybe it's just easier to buy something new than to look for it, right? James talks about things. He talks about clothes in particular, but he also just talks about hoarding money itself. We pile up money for ourselves, for our security in it, it moves from becoming wise into being our confidence. For some reason, all I could think about, this is maybe as a 90s kid or something, was Scrooge McDuck diving into all his coins. I, if you remember that cartoon, but he was a hoarder, and not of things, but of, of money. He never used it, just a silo full of cash. Ken Hughes says this to, to help balance it out. He says, while the Bible does not discourage saving, and prudential provision for one's needs, it is dead set against the vast accumulation of self-directed wealth focused solely on perpetuating one's own comforts and pleasures. Wow. Dead set against the vast accumulation of self-directed wealth focused solely on perpetuating one's own comforts and pleasures. 
Let's be honest. That's what we want, don't we? I would love to have a vast accumulation of wealth that I could just use for myself. If I'm honest about the sinful desires in my heart, I want it. So Jesus gives us this application in Matthew 6, 19-21. He says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but what? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth, (laughs) moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What good words. Hoarding then has not to do with how we use money. It just reveals our, that our true treasure is not in God. So let's repent, all of us, of, of hoarding. And throw hoarding out of our lives. Maybe throw some things out of our lives too. So if we love money and we have access to all these things, then hoarding could be something that we fall into and, and not trusting God. The next morning James has... Uh, offers this that that sort of has to do with um, what we do with the money that we have. The next thing that James talks about has to do with how we acquire money and possessions. And and the the thing that he's warning against here is injustice. Injustice. So we saw hoarding. Now we're going to see the the temptation towards injustice. Verse um, four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The rich that James is addressing are accused of fraud and injustice for withholding the wages that were rightly due to the people who were plowing and harvesting their fields. So it says there, interestingly, that the wages are crying out and the workers are crying out, and both of them. So the the wages that are in the rich man's storehouse that don't belong to him, but rightly belong to the guy who worked the field for him, they're crying out, and the workers who are saying, hey, you owe me money, they're crying out, but they're not crying out to the rich man, they're crying out to God as evidence of this injustice. Now, most of us do not have employees that we are withholding money from, but there are people that we all owe some sort of money to, whether it's taxes or services that people do for us or in some other way. And do we pay people what is owed to them? Or do we borrow items and then never return them and in that in that in, inadvertently rob them of something that is theirs? Do we steal from others? Maybe not walking into a store and stealing something, but there's a lot of ways to steal things. In our internet age, do we download movies and music and other things that we should be paying for? People have put time and energy into making, and we just say, well, it's for free here, and so I'm allowed to have it. Are we fair in how we pay others? Even beyond being fair, are we generous? How do we tip people at restaurants? Are we expressing the kingdom in that? Are our financial dealings marked by justice and by righteousness and how we pay others? I think we can even think about how justice can be reflected in the things that we purchase. We have this strange responsibility to to know what our money is supporting. Because here's the reality. The desire to make a profit can lead a business into unethical practices. And those unethical practices show up in our stores as really good bargains. Because they have taken advantage of people so that we can have a product for a lot cheaper. But the question then becomes, what is the cost to others 
that is making the cost of my merchandise so low? Now, I'd rather not ask that question because that's a, that's a rabbit hole for sure. We might end up not buying anything, but we have to ask these questions. Because it's, and in fact, in our day and age, it's amazingly simple to figure out where your products come from. It's amazingly simple to find out if a company is ethical, if they treat their employees fairly, if they provide a, a fair wage, if they don't use child labor, that, there are ethic, that they are ethical in their treatment of the environment, this world that God has given us. So we may not employ others, but we allow others to employ others when we purchase their products and allow them to continue the practices that they have in their businesses, whether they're good or bad. So your money and my money is very, very powerful. And if we ignore issues of justice within the, the realm of business and what we purchase, then we could unjustly be using the power that our money has. Let me try to give you some ideas, some concrete stuff. So if you had coffee this morning, it's fair trade coffee. <laughs> now that's a small thing. But here's the reality. We, we pay a little bit more for the coffee beans that we have here because coffee farmers, if you look at this at all, are taken advantage of around the world so that we can have cheap coffee. Now, even if I like cheap coffee, which I don't, <laughs> even if you like cheap coffee, then we need to step back and say, is there a threat in me purchasing this that I'm actually causing injustice in the world and not allowing people to be treated fairly? Again, these are rabbit holes. We can get a little mixed up on this, but we need to be aware. I was reading this week about how child and even slave labor is often used on farms in West Africa that produce the cocoa that leads to us having chocolate. To be honest, it would be nice if I was naive to that, but now I know it. And now I have to think about how I purchase. What, do I, what am I going to purchase? Am I in, encouraging things that I don't want to encourage? It might mean paying a little bit more for it. It might mean I don't get to eat as much chocolate as I want to. But am I promoting justice in the world with the money that I have? My wife and I, our 14th anniversary is coming up, and I try to buy her a gift that relates to the, uh, the you know, this calendar, the traditional gifts, whatever. So you know what 14 is? Ivory. <laughs> Ivory is illegal, and rightfully so. It is, it is wrong. I was supposed to get her something. I can't do it because it's illegal. Our world is messed up in many ways, but the image of God in some way looks at injustice and knows what it looks like, and it looks at this unconscious slaughter of animals for profit and said, that's wrong. That's, that's a reflection of the justice of God in this world. And, and we can look at that, and we shouldn't say, oh, man, I can't get anything ivory. We should say, I don't want anything ivory, because that's not right. I don't want to promote injustice with my money. Boy, these are hard questions, though. You know, who makes my shoes? Who makes my clothes? How are the people treated at the stores that I frequent, even here in town? Are employees treated fairly? Are they paid right? Would it be right for me to pay a little bit more for the items that I get so that people can receive benefit and blessing and a livable wage? I'm wading into areas that I don't know too much about. But as I read this, I think that's the area where justice hits me. And I have to take it seriously. Uh, because uh, not to the point of, of being paralyzed to the, the place that I don't purchase anything, because uh, we'll never do this perfect, but I have to take it serious because the text says that, that if we do not practice justice with our money, 
then the cry of the unpaid wages and the cry of these workers goes up to the Lord of hosts. God sees this. And if I see it, I need to do something about it. God sees it. He's the Lord of hosts. It's a name that speaks of God being among the angels, and, and it speaks of his ability and his power to come in just judgment in the world. And God will judge us for how we use our money. I'm sobered by that. Because I sometimes I'm just unconscious in what I do. We all are. But I'm also sobered by the words of, of chapter 4, verse 17, that sort of lead into this. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So maybe I've ruined your chocolate habit. <laughs> but isn't it better to do justice in this world? Hoarding, injustice. The next thing James addresses is indulgence. Indulgence, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Boy, he just keeps coming, doesn't he? So we're back to this issue of how we use our money, and James condemns luxury and self-indulgence. The use of wealth with disregard for anyone else. It's to make my life soft and, and pampered. Now, there are times for celebration. There are times to rejoice in God's good gifts. Time to use our money to find joy in God through the things that he gives us and that we can buy. Vacations and birthdays and, and Christmas. I mean, we did a whole series about enjoying God's good gifts. I 100% believe in that. But there is a line that we can cross that leads into self-indulgence and selfishness. We begin to become too comfortable and too enamored with things, and we use the vast majority of our wealth simply for our own indulgence and our own selfish desires. For a lot of us, luxury may be more in our hearts than actually in our homes, just because we're, we're rich, but we're not rich, rich. You know, <laughs> uh, so we could think about the love of money, this this desire for things, and we we look at magazines. We say, "Boy, I just wish my house looked like that." I wish that it was nice like that or big like that. We watch a television show and we want that food or we want to go on that vacation. And we crave after luxury. I don't know if that's part of just the, the longing for, for rest and for peace sort of gone awry. Boy, one day we will live in luxury, won't we, in, in heaven? <laughs> There'll be great joy in that. But we long for it now and we can use our money just for ourselves. The picture James offers, though, is, is pretty bleak. If we, if what we want and, and what we can get is the sole summary of our lives, then all we're doing, he says, is fattening ourselves up for the day of slaughter. <laughs> if you just indulge in eating good food that you love every day, you know what you're doing? You're fattening yourself up for the day. We're like Hansel and Gretel. You know, we just keep choking down all the sweets of the world so that one day we can be slaughtered like a cow. That's the picture. It's pretty grotesque. But it calls us to beware of, in, of, of using our money only to indulge ourselves. Hoarding, injustice, indulgence. The final one is murder. Murder. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now that may take you by surprise. You weren't expecting me to say murder, probably. But follow me. 
James may have in mind here the way that the, the rich in that time would take people to court. And it was true then, as is true now, that money is power. And the poor could not resist. The, the poor could not find justice because they didn't have the clout. They didn't have the influence. Money and the power that comes with it can be so blind that we murder innocent people in the pursuit of it and in the desire to keep it and hoard it for ourselves. It's the idea, I think, that if we're not careful, we will love money more than people. We will hurt and harm others to keep our cash and our clutter in our closets. <laughs> it's been said that we should use money and love people, not love money and use people. And often we do the latter. What's most poignant, I think, about this is this allusion to the righteous person or the righteous one in verse 6 there. Do you see that you have condemned and murdered the righteous person? I don't think that's an accident. I think we're reminded of, of the religious leaders of Jesus' day and how he often condemned them for their love of power and for their love of money. And that was at least part of what angered them so much to the place that Jesus was taking their power and he was condemning their riches, so they killed him. I think that's part, it has to be part of the illusion of what's going on here, the righteous one. And we too run that risk of not hearing these warnings, but of just getting angry, of wanting to stuff out the light of truth rather than submit to it of wanting to get so much wealth that we end up condemning others and murdering them, running over them. What a scary thing. Remember that where does fighting and wars and quarrels come from, according to James? It comes from right in here. It comes in from the desires that are in my heart. It doesn't have to be the money itself, but just the desire for it can lead us to this hoarding mentality, this injustice, this... Um, this this murderous spirit that's in our hearts and this desire just to indulge ourselves but if we would submit to God if we will submit to God and to his rule then we will resist the wisdom of the world and the flesh and the devil and we will draw near to God and as we do that that's where true joy is found it's not found in earthly wealth but it's found in the treasures that will never rust and will never fade away. Remember, the key call here, I think, is James is saying, repent. Recognize, we all have these things down in our souls. We all have them, whether we have money or not, but they're there. And the call is to repent, to repent of the sins that come with riches and the desire for riches. All sin leads to death. James tells us that. And if we are not careful we do not take sin, seri sin seriously on the last day, then we will face eternal consequences. But thanks be to God, He's taken sin seriously for us, to the point of sacrificing His Son to save us from that day of slaughter. He calls us to turn to Him, to turn from sin, and to turn to Him as the true treasure of our lives. He wants us to know forgiveness, to know the the joy of living our lives, not for ourselves, but for His glory. 
and for the love of others. Here's what's interesting to me. If we will repent of these sins, remember that always with the put off, what do we have? We have the put on. God doesn't come with his commands and say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and leave it there. No, he calls us to live in the fruit of the Spirit. So, instead of hoarding, we freely give. We just freely give, and not just the overabundance of the junk that's in our closet that we take to the thrift store. Go ahead and do that. But also, the money that's in our bank account that we're holding on to and waiting to do something with it. Well, I was even thinking, as a church, we got some money we could give away. I love at the end of the year when we make sure whatever we budgeted for missions, that that gets out the door. Because we don't want to hold on to it. I don't need to, we don't need to keep that. Let's give it away. Hoarding leads to freely giving. Injustice leads to being fair and to being honest in all the ways that we deal with our finances. We are above reproach in how we use our money in every way possible. Indulgence leads to generosity. And a generosity that's only possible because we, in fact, deny ourselves some of these things that we truly desire. Of course, it's more blessed to give than to receive, isn't it? And so even in, in, in that generous spirit where we say, you know what, I could have this, but I'm going to give it. That, boy, we, there's, there's greater joy in that than holding on to it. How many things do we indulge in that, boy, we could find so much joy if we saw someone else rejoicing in the things that we have? And what does murder lead to? Instead of murder, we, lead, we, we turn to love. Love for Christ. Love for others. We don't destroy others, but rather we lay down our own lives and all that we have in worship to God. James's warning is, is strong. And again, if I would encourage you to go back to that 1 Timothy 6 passage this afternoon and, and meditate some on that, because he gives some of the positive response. But James tells us if we would persist in pridefully boasting in earthly wealth, then we will be humbled on the last day. But if we will humble ourselves now, submit to God, and boast only in Christ, then we will be exalted. A life that is marked primarily by hoarding, by injustice, by indulgence, and by murder, by murder, James says that will stand on the last day as evidence that God was not who we worshipped, but rather self and money and possessions were. But if we have a giving, an honest, a generous spirit, it will show that we love God, that we worshipped Him, not the stuff of this earth. So let us walk in the ways of Jesus. Let's walk like Jesus who gave His very life for us in obedience to the Father. He didn't hoard the riches of His kingdom, but He offers them to us all freely by grace through faith. He exemplifies justice. He fulfills God's just demands. And He was murdered so that we could have life. Let us treasure Jesus more than wealth so that on the last day we'll care so little about money in the new kingdom that we'll just say, oh, we've got some extra gold, let's pave a new street. And we'll never get tired just simply of worshiping before Jesus and living in his presence.